0: All right, so we are beginning a new series here, a new summer series that we've entitled The Creed, considering some of the core doctrines of the faith. Uh, Scripture, God, creation, humanity, sin, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, salvation, the church, and future events, all these big doctrines, and in order to organize our thoughts, we are considering these doctrines through the ordered lens of the Apostles' Creed. A very simple, succinct statement of Christian belief uh, that has been recited down through the centuries. So let's start there this morning, uh, together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Now each week, uh, we, particularly me, but we are going to feel a bit overwhelmed with the task before us as we try to consider an entire domain of theology in one setting. I don't know what's gotten into me recently. We go through this Route 66 series where we try to talk about entire books of the Bible in one message, and then we step into this series where we try to talk about entire doctrines in one message. It's good for us to get that big picture view, but it's going to be challenging. We're going to feel overwhelmed, and we're going to feel that most acutely today. As we talk about the doctrine of God, about who God is, how can we describe that? If we were to take that as our theme for a whole year, we would only scratch the surface. Uh, I do want to challenge us today, as we think about the doctrine of God, uh, we might tend to think of a very lofty, academic, sort of theoretical discussion, a philosophical discussion about who God is, but I want to suggest to you that a conversation about God is intensely practical and relevant for day-to-day living. J.I. Packer, in his classic work, Knowing God, said this, disregard the study of God And you sentence yourself to stumble and blunder through life, blindfold as it were, with no sense of direction and no understanding of what surrounds you. This way, you can waste your life and lose your soul. He starts off talking about why we need to study God, why we need to consider God. If we're going to make any sense of our lives... If we're going to have any sense of direction, any sense of purpose, any sense of who we are and how we've been created, and how marriage is meant to function, and how uh, parenting works, and how work, how how we're supposed to engage with work with with our tasks, if we if we want to navigate any of this, it's only going to flow out of a proper understanding of who God is and how He's created us to live. So. It's, so practical. He, uh, he uses the illustration of uh, an Amazonian tribesman who is plopped in the mid- middle of Trafalgar Square, which in London is like our Times Square, right? This busy intersection, metropolis, and there this guy stands in his loincloth. He can't speak the language. He has no money. Uh, he's not sure what to do. It's cold. Uh, that's, a cruel, that's a cruel joke, right? Right? to put that tribesman in that situation. And it would be a a sad story for us to try to muddle our way through life apart from the knowledge of God. Um, So, uh, yeah, Packer really hits on it there and I think just says, "This, this this is not just an academic exercise. We're talking about Uh, something that is intensely practical. Uh, Spurgeon also uh, talked about this in one of his sermons. He, He suggested that the contemplation of God is eminently consolatory, which is just a way of saying that it's comforting, that when things seem to be spinning out of control, when the price of fuel keeps skyrocketing, right? when our community is fractured and in the midst of the death of Patrick LeOya, everything's the, the, the wheels have come off <laughs> our society. Maybe the wheels have come off in your life personally, right? We should consider our great God. It's, it brings comfort. We remember that God is not caught off guard, God is not in a panic over these things. God is continuing to carry out his purposes. God is sovereign over the events of humanity. He's pro- pro- his providence is being exercised over all the events of human history. That doesn't take away our problems, right? It doesn't take away our struggles, but it should bring a sense of comfort. Um, so if you want to address your anxiety and depression, contemplate the person and work of God, the Father Almighty. So it's, 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 it's not only important to understand God, but it's practical. And it, 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 it impacts us uh, in countless ways. Well, one of the other tools we've been using here is the catechism. Uh, the creeds and the catechisms provide concise, memorable ways of thinking about big doctrines. Right? Trying to boil it down a little bit. So uh, this is from the New City Catechism. It's a very brief work, it's a newer work, uh, 52 questions and answers intended to sort of cover one year. So this would be a great resource to use with your family. Uh, you could have that on your dining room table and uh, each week take one of those questions and answers and work to memorize it together with your family. I'm sure Leland can handle it. He'll be, he'll be good. Within one week probably he'll, he'll know it. Um, So I'll ask the question, you give the answer. What is God? Actually, Spurgeon had a pretty big statement about um, in the preface of his catechism. He said, Don't worry if, you know, essentially, don't worry if your kids don't understand it. They will. Like, they might not get it right now, but it'll come back to them. So, uh, yeah, important to just learn God's truth, to place it in our hearts. Well, I'm really throwing you off today. There are no outlines. I already heard about it from my son Johnny. Uh, His world came unglued this morning when he comes up to me to ask me where the outline was. And I said, there is no outline. Um, He he just couldn't get his head around it. But Warren Wiersbe always used to say, he he was kind of a pastor to pastors. He's now with the Lord. But I remember him talking to a group of us pastors and he said, be careful that you don't outline the life out of a passage. And I thought about that this week as I'm trying desperately to, how can I talk about God in 35 to 40 minutes? (laughs) And I just couldn't put it in an outline, okay? So our outline is just going to be the three terms that are used here in the creed. God, the Father, Almighty. All right, we're going to look at those three terms to try to understand more of who God is. So the first title there is God. When we say that, I believe in God, we are saying that God exists. We believe that God exists. And we are saying that there is one God. We don't say that I believe in the gods, as many cultures and times in history have done. We believe in God, the one God. God. It's expressed very clearly in uh, what the Jewish people call the Shema in Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. Uh, the creed goes on to identify this God as maker of heaven and earth, something we'll talk more about next week. But clearly we are talking about an eternal God Who stands outside of his creation, right? Who existed before anything else existed, who exists outside of time and space. It is not that he did exist or he will exist, but that he does exist. He's unchanging, unaffected by the passing of time. Now, God is a generic title. In the Hebrew, it's Elohim. But God eventually reveals his proper name. Matter of fact, uh, it comes up uh, as God is speaking with Moses. So God appears to Moses right in the burning bush and says to Moses, I want you to go and lead my, my people out of slavery in Egypt. And Moses feels very inadequate to the task, and we pick up here in uh, Exodus. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. So there it is. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's how it's brought across in the English language. This is the proper name of God, and it literally means I am. So at the very core of what makes God, God, is the fact that he is self-existent. He has no beginning, he has no end, there is no past, there is no future with God, it is all present with God. So this is a core aspect of who he is, so much so that it is synonymous with his name. This is how that name looks in the four Hebrew letters. Uh, Hebrew does not use vowels. So sometimes there's some ambiguity as to how to pronounce this, okay? Uh, Either Yahweh or Jehovah And how can there be ambiguity about this? Well, one reason is because there's no vowels in the Hebrew language, so you have to fill in some of the gaps. But maybe a bigger reason is that the people of Israel did not pronounce this name. They did not want to take God's name in vain. They did not want to become overly familiar with the name of Almighty God. And so they would often just put something there in its place. Even those who copied the Scriptures would often put a mark or a special stylized font at that point just to mark the place of God's name. There's something else here in the name God that is significant. The Hebrew term Elohim is a plural construct. So while there is one God, there is some type of plurality within God. And this comes out at different places in the Old Testament text. Genesis 1 in the creation account, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. A little bit later in the Tower of Babel episode, the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down And there, confuse their language. Some have referred to this as the Divine Council. Early on, here we are given the framework for understanding the Triune God or the Trinity. Trinity is not a term we find in the Bible. It is, however, a concept that is clearly taught in the Bible. The Scriptures present the Father as God. The Scriptures present the Son as God. The Scriptures present the Holy Spirit as God. And yet, we are not talking about three gods, but one God in three persons. It's important that we speak about this correctly. These are not simply three modes or manifestations of God. It is not as if God puts on different masks. He puts on his Holy Spirit mask, and then he puts on his Jesus the Son mask, and then his God the Father mask. Uh, It is not that these are three parts of God, as if Jesus is only one-third God, but each person of the Godhead is fully God each person of the Godhead carries out distinctive roles in the work of creation and in the work of redemption. The triune formula is repeated. Of course, it forms the, the framework for the Apostles' Creed that we've been considering, right? Uh, we find it there in Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you look at the New Testament and it's just pervasive the triune formula of the triune God. By the way, uh, as Craig has already introduced uh, this morning, this is Trinity Sunday. And uh, there's a reason why Trinity Sunday is put in this particular point in the church calendar. So uh, we, we already focused on the work of Christ and the events of Good Friday and Easter Sunday and the resurrection. And then last week we celebrated Pentecost, the pouring out of God's Spirit, the establishment of the church, and so we've considered all three persons of the Godhead, and then after Pentecost you step back and you think about the triune God, Uh, the, 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 the unique roles of each member of the Godhead, and we give praise to the God who is one in three. The Trinity is a a mystery which cannot be comprehended by human reason, understood only through faith. So we dare not use too many clever illustrations to try to capture the Trinity. We can't get our minds around it. We never will. Uh, But we just believe what the Scriptures declare. And this is all best understood in the words of the Athanasian Creed. This is the true Christian faith that we worship one God in three persons and three persons in the one God without confusing the persons or dividing the divine substance. For the Father is one person, the Son is another, and the Holy Spirit is still another. But there is one Godhead of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit equal in glory and co-equal in majesty. So this is what the church has always believed the Scriptures to teach. And this is all wrapped up in this title of God. In 2005, sociologist Christian Smith uh, described what he saw to be the prevailing belief system among the emerging generation in the United States. He called it moralistic, therapeutic deism. It's not real memorable or catchy, is it? But this is what he saw on the horizon. This is what he was seeing, that people were believing about God. So moralistic, therapeutic deism. Number one, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other. Don't get crazy, you know, with a lot of, you know, really strong, ethical positions, but just, you know, we ought to be nice. You know, this is what God expects of us. Uh, number two, so that's the moralistic side of it. Number two, the central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about oneself. Therapeutic. This is the moralistic, therapeutic deism, that God is, God is there to help me feel better about myself, to enjoy life more. This is God's role. And number three, the deism part, God is not particularly involved in one's life except when needed to resolve a problem. That's deism. The idea that God created, but then he basically just lets things proceed on their own. Uh, the point is that this is not a biblical worldview, right? This is not the God that is revealed to us in the Bible. God does not merely lay out a few general guidelines, be nice. No, God demands our full allegiance and obedience in every area of life. We've been purchased out of slavery. We've been adopted into his family. We are to embrace his values. We are to be holy as he is holy, right? The goal of life is not our happiness, but God's glory. God's called us into a mission. that's not easy. But it's about God's glory. And God is... Not distant or uninvolved, but actively engaged in human history. So again, there's some notions of who God is that are very pervasive in our culture here in the 21st century. And they're not correct. So as we just begin to think about God, we have to make sure that we're thinking of him in terms of how he has revealed himself in the scriptures. So God. The second term used here is father. Father. And I believe what's happening here is that in the creed, uh, there is a definition or an attempt to describe the character of God. So there's a comma there in the creed. I believe in God, comma. The Father. He's describing God. He's helping us to think about God in a certain way. I believe in God, the Father. Now, there are some obscure Old Testament passages where God is referred to as Father, like Hosea chapter 11, Psalm 68, but it's pretty rare. And the way that Jesus spoke about God in such personal terms as his Father was was shocking to first century Jews. I remember when Joseph and Mary took the young boy Jesus to Jerusalem, and in the The hubbub of the excitement and the big extended family gathering, Jesus was left behind, right, in Jerusalem. And eventually they remember, oh, where's Jesus at? And they rush back and they chide Jesus. What are you doing? We've been worried sick about you. Don't you know we've been looking for you? And Jesus said, why are you so surprised? Wouldn't you know that I would be in my father's house? Where else would I be? Hmm. It says that they were pretty confused about this. There's my paraphrase. They didn't quite understand what he's talking about, right? But this is how he was speaking about his father. The temple was his father's house. This is where he should be. When speaking to the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus declared, I and the Father are one. John chapter 10. He described the incredibly close relationship The text says that they picked, immediately after that, that they picked up stones to stone him. I mean, this was blasphemy. This was crazy talk. This was, by the way, the the one charge that they actually got to stick against him when they wanted to crucify him that he had claimed this type of relationship, calling God his father. Jesus called out, Abba, Father, on the eve of his arrest and crucifixion. There in the Garden of Gethsemane, he used this term of endearment, Daddy, Father. Twice he cried out to his Father from the cross, calling out his name. So we understand that God was Jesus' Father, but the creed here is saying something more radical. It is saying that God is our Father as well. Jesus taught us as his disciples to address God as our heavenly Father. The Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer, Matthew chapter 6. And we have to be clear the Apostles' Creed does not teach the universal fatherhood of God. God is not father to all. Jesus, as a matter of fact, had to remind the religious leaders that their father was not God, but Satan. You see, in our natural condition, we are God's enemies. We've only been reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, One of the places we see this is Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So here we get the connection between the work of Christ, the redeeming work of Christ, his death on our behalf to pay the penalty that our sins deserved. Jesus uh, was the propitiation. It means he appeased the wrath of God through his own sacrifice and paving the way for us now to be adopted as God's sons, to be welcomed into his family. But that's not our natural position. (laughs) We aren't naturally born as children of God. But through Christ, we're able to now be reconciled to God, adopted into His family. Jesus made it clear, even as He spoke following His resurrection, that His death, burial, resurrection signaled a radically new type of relationship with God. Uh, I love this passage in John 20. This was our text this past Easter. Um, Jesus talking to Mary Magdalene after the resurrection, she is desperately clinging to him, right? And Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Up until this point, Jesus had only used brother terminology, or the Gospels had only used brother terminology to describe Jesus' relationship with his biological half-siblings. For the first time, after his work on the cross and his resurrection, he refers to his disciples as his brothers, and he says to Mary, I'm going to my father and to your father. Uh, something had changed, a, a way had been paved for reconciliation with God. So this this opens up a whole new realm of how we ought to be thinking about our relationship with God. I, of course, love this picture of uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. there in his father's office, the Oval Office, by the way. Uh, how did he get past security is the question of the hour, right, to get into the presidential office and the point is of course he didn't need to get past security he has a free pass because his dad was the president and we have that same access to the father to God we have this this relationship uh, not just as a creator with creatures but as a father with his children Staggering implications, it means that God knows what's going on in our lives. Like every good parent, right, they have eyes in the back of their head. Uh, we're told in Matthew 6 that God sees what is done in secret, right? Uh, Matthew six thirty-two. God knows what we need before we even ask him, right? Parents know, they know what their kids need more so than their kids know what they need. Like any earthly father, he desires to give good gifts to his children. Mark 12, it is God's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. The Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom. To give us everything. Everything that is his is ours. So God is for us. We have access to him. We're always welcome in his presence. I always have this mental battle in prayer uh, where I'll have this persistent sin and I get angry again or I uh, work through impurity, whatever it might be, and and I think, oh God, God doesn't want to see me, He doesn't want to hear from me <laughs> um, after what I've just done, and have to remember that God is my Father. He He longs to welcome me. He's like in the parable of the prodigal, right, son, he's, he's running down the lane to receive his children. Now, this, of course, also means that we experience his discipline. The fact that he's our father means that he disciplines us. He's not a coddling father or one that can be manipulated. He does not give us what we want, but what we need And that discipline is often painful, but it is an expression of our love and it is for our good. Because God is our Father, we are expected to emulate Him, not just in some minor areas, but in every area. Paul writes to the Philippians, do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Even our attitudes, the the ways that we talk with one another ought to reflect our relationship with our Father. So God, the Father. And the final term here is Almighty. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. The Creed uses a warm and relational word like Father, but then uses an exalted word like Almighty. It's as if the writers of the Creed want to hold in tension God's might and His mercy. As we sang about already this morning. Merciful and mighty were the words there uh, of holy, holy, holy. Merciful and mighty. When we speak about God as Father, we must be clear that He's not a Father to be ignored or manipulated. He is El Shaddai, the all-powerful God. Depicted here in Revelation 11, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. All the strong words in that text connected with this idea of God Almighty. God is not distant, he is not far away, but he is transcendent. He is completely other. He is in his own category, completely set apart from the rest of his creation. When we speak about God, we usually speak of communicable and incommunicable attributes communicable attributes are those attributes that we can participate in think about communicable diseases these are diseases we can share hopefully not but these are diseases we can share right uh so there's aspects of God's character that we can share his his love his justice his wisdom I mean to be clear God possesses these attributes perfectly in a way that we do not but we can act in love we can act justly We can act in ways that reflect wisdom. We can share in some of God's attributes. But when the Creed speaks of God Almighty, it is speaking particularly of God's incommunicable attributes, often called his perfections. Omnipotence, right? He is all-powerful. Omniscience, he is all-knowing. Omnipresence, he is everywhere present. Self-existence, he doesn't depend on oxygen or food to survive like we do. Immutability, he does not change. We discover new information, we change our position, we have to revisit our parenting tactics Uh, on a constant basis. God never has to do those things. He's never lacking in information he never has to go back and retract a statement that he made an error. We do. God doesn't. That's an attribute that he alone carries, an incommunicable attribute. So this is God the Father, Almighty. God judged the world by means of a global flood. Right? That's 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 God Almighty. <laughs> God caused childless Sarah to conceive when she was 90 years old. Job had to learn that it was God who keeps the storehouses of snow. A God who sends the winds across the face of the earth. God who sends the thunderbolts in the storm. He's the one who, who causes the stars of the universe to move in perfect time throughout the universe. God led Egypt... God led Israel out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Right? He held back the waters of the Red Sea so that the people could pass through on dry land. And he caused Pharaoh's armies to be drowned in the sea. I like this depiction by uh, Frederick Chopin an 1855 work entitled, The Children of Israel Crossing the Red Sea. And actually, in this particular point in The crossing, they're already across. They're standing now on dry land and they're seeing the waves uh, drown the mighty armies of Pharaoh. And one of the things that stood out to me here was the amount of children that Chopin uh, highlights. The women and children have a very prominent role in this. In this painting. So you have Pharaoh's army, the the mightiest army on the face of the earth, a bunch against a bunch of ragtag slaves, women, children, elderly in tow. And there we have uh, the army being defeated. This is this is God Almighty. This is God who appeared on in fire on Mount Sinai and spoke with thunder. Brought down the walls of Jericho. When Uzzah reached out to steady the Ark of the Covenant, he was struck dead. Isaiah, the most righteous man of his day, sees the Lord high and lifted up with the train of his robe filling the temple, and he is completely undone. He just falls on his face. Almighty God. "...who moves in the hearts of kings so they carry out his purposes." Pagan kings like King Cyrus were contributing to God's plan unwillingly. Almighty God caused a virgin to conceive. He raised Jesus from the dead. He empowered a group of Galilean fishermen to turn the world upside down. He will pour out a judgment of fire in the days to come. He speaks with the roar of a waterfall... He will seize the great dragon and cast him into the lake of fire. All will stand before his throne and give an account. This is God, the Father Almighty. We should fear God in a reverential way. We ought to be mindful of the casualness with which we approach him. He is to be obeyed. Not simply endured, listened to, Dodged. We should live godly lives as opposed to godless lives Uh, like Esau, right? Esau sold his birthright for a pot of stew. He, he, He cared very little about God's approval, about he lived a godless life as if God didn't exist. We should avoid our culture's narcissistic tendencies, the tendencies to think that everything is about me. We should be careful to not train our children to be narcissists, to think that everything is about them. And as we think about the implications of God the Father Almighty, it ought to also cause us to live confidently. God is not only for us. He doesn't just desire what is best for us. He's able to accomplish it. He's not limited in any way. He is all-powerful. So God, the Father Almighty. I couldn't help but think uh, of the prodigal son again, So I thought about God. Kind of where we started with the kids here this morning. This is Rembrandt's depiction. Uh, we see the younger son, uh, head shaved uh, like, like a slave in the first century. If you see his feet, there's uh, uh, tatters of sandals maybe remaining there. He's grimy. Uh, he's a bit emaciated. <laughs> but look here is the Father embracing, God the Father Almighty, embracing this one who comes with humility. There's also a sense of humility uh, Estrangement there related to the older son on the right who stands there with his harumph. Right? Proud. He didn't run away. He didn't waste all his father's money. But he stands separated from God. Separated from the father. Estranged. We have here both the gentleness and the tenderness of the father and yet his strength and might displayed as well. He's not to be manipulated by the older son. The older son will need to bow the knee before he is drawn into a relationship with God. And so I pray that God will help us to understand Him more fully. We would truly believe in God, the Father Almighty.